0: Um, Well, welcome guys. Welcome to Advent at Resonate. As you can see, we're a little more Christmassy around here. Um, Happy Thanksgiving as well. I I actually forgot last week to say Happy Thanksgiving, so I'm a jerk, but uh, welcome. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, And so this is a really exciting time. We get to enter into uh, a really precious sort of part of the church calendar, and that's called Advent. Everyone say that with me, Advent. So Advent isn't just a magical cardboard uh, calendar that has chocolates in it from I don't even know how long ago. Uh, Advent is actually a period of waiting, so this expectant time of waiting and expectancy that that the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Christ, is going to be born, and what's really awesome about the season is uh, from the Hebrew perspective, we get to sit in sort of that historical, symbolic tension that, like... This is the Hebrew nation, and we're we're crying out, like, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, where are you, God? Come quickly. That sort of, like, expectancy and that urgency and that waiting, it still sort of exists in the Jewish tradition. And then on top of that, in the Christian tradition, the one that we're sitting in in this room today, we actually get to sit in the expectancy that Jesus is going to come again. And so that's a real thing for us. So it's this really cool, like, symbolic and then also very real and very physical And I think that is a perfect way, symbolic and very real, very literal, to read the Scripture and especially to read uh, the story that we're going to be going through today, which is um, David and Goliath. And so uh, before we do that, actually, I'm going to break this up into three parts just so you know where we're headed this morning. One, we're going to do the story. So I'm going to tell the story of David and Goliath, probably like you've never heard it before or exactly how you've heard it. And then two, we're going to talk about purpose. And then three, I'm going to go on an epic shepherd's rant, because I think there are a lot of shepherds, and I'm trying to figure out why there are so many of them. So before we do that, uh, let me just pray over us and pray over this space. So God, I am just so, so grateful to be here. Uh, We have a lot of people away with family right now, Lord, and I'm I'm thankful for the time uh, that we get to spend with family away, going home, all that kind of stuff. We live in a sort of area where... Not a lot of us are actually from here, and so this is just a precious time to be able to go back and and be with our loved ones, our friends, our family, and Lord, I also just want to point out the tension that exists uh, just in holidays in general, and that's that, you know, this can be an awesome, wonderful, glorious time, and it can also be a really tough, difficult time, and so for those of us who are hurting in this space right now, I just, I pray that you would just send some healing, send some hope, send some joy, uh, and just, Stand with us in that. Amen. All right, so David and Goliath. David and Goliath is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible, if not the most famous. Seriously, when I Googled it this week, it yields about, as Google says, about $14 different results. And that's compared to Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, which only yields 381,000. And so you can see why we may have skipped over that one. Um, But 381,000 compared to 14 million. As I looked and researched, a simple Amazon search yields millions of results. It's crazy. This story has somehow lurched inside of our culture and inside of us. And it seems to be a really, really important narrative, especially in America. Like when you say David and Goliath, it's kind of like just it's known that this is going to be a an upset. Like, this is a story about an underdog that's going to take on the man, the big guy, right? And that's just sort of like the slang term that we use. It's just David and Goliath. Um, but this story, this story is actually so deep and intricate and layers deep, and it's so much more than just this underdog versus the big guy story. And what we're actually going to unpack this morning is it wasn't really so much an underdog story. It was more of like a trust story. Back to David for a second. So David uh, is, is known as a man after God's own heart. We're skipping ahead here. So where we left off with Moses and the Exodus, we're jumping way ahead, mostly just to get into the Christmas season. But we're skipping up a lot. Of the Old Testament as we go through here. We're skipping Deuteronomy, we're skipping Numbers, we're skipping all the books that are kind of dense and difficult to read. Uh, but we're, we're going all the way here and we're finding ourselves in the story of David. And that's important, especially in the Advent season, because the line of David is crucial in both the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition. David, the best king that Israel had seen up to that point, and then Jesus, this new sort of king that we're going to see and talk about this morning. David um, was also a gifted musician and a poet and a crazy warrior, and I think those are three unfair combinations, if you ask me. Um, There's also three sculptures of David by Donatello, Michelangelo, and I'm going to make sure I get this one right, Bernini, and Bernini is the only one where he is clothed, so people are obsessed with David for other reasons. Um, See, so before David, there was this rather disappointing king. In fact, the first king that Israel ever had. Israel goes through, we're skipping, but it goes through Exodus, and then there's this nation that's known not for a people that follow a king, but for a people that follow God. And finally, they get sort of fed up with with following God and listening to these prophets and these judges, and they go, we want a king. We want to look like all the other nations give us a king. And they keep crying out. And Samuel, who's this uh, prophetic voice, he's a prophet, It's like, guys, this is not a good idea. And they keep crying out, and they're like, we want a king, we want a king. And finally, God relents, and he says, you know what? Give them what they want. This guy Saul is your man. So Saul starts out really, really awesome, rah, 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 Saul, and then ends up walking away from God, uh, turning his back, and sort of taking the power that he was given as a king and and focusing on his power rather than God's to lead this nation. So Israel kind of gets in some trouble. And we're going to see this. As we continue through the stories, Israel is always like, it's like that friend that's like, man, he's doing so great right now. And then right when he's getting really, really good, it's like, just falls right apart. Um, And this is one of Israel's little dips. And so Saul, Saul walks away, and then all of a sudden, Samuel, God approaches Samuel and he says, you know what, this Saul guy, he's he's walked away from me, he's not listening to me anymore, we need to find someone else. And I want you to go to this man Jesse's house, and I want you to pick, it's going to be one of his sons. So Samuel the prophet goes to this, this home of Jesse, and there's, there's five kids uh, that are there, and he sees all the five kids, and then he goes, wait, is this all because I'm not getting anything from these guys? And let's read the scripture here. This is in uh, 1 Samuel. Let me zoom down so I can grab it. Uh, this is 1 Samuel 16, 10 through 13. And it says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Sorry, seven, not six. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. That's good that we know where Samuel's going. Um, so David has been chosen. And can you imagine, this is a kid. Biblical scholars place him like, as just a small boy at this point. Can you imagine being like the youngest brother of a like, big, big family like that? and you know because a prophet came to your home that you are going to be the future king of Israel. That's got to mess with your head. It would mess with anybody's head. And that actually speaks to the integrity of David because what we see in this story that we're going to unpack, the David and Goliath story, is this is very much a man of integrity even though he has every right to be just outright like cocky and ignorant. He, he holds to being humble, to being gracious, and to being good. And in the light of, like, big news and big power, that's a pretty big deal. So let's fast forward for the sake of time. Let's get to the good stuff. Uh, The Philistines decided it would be a good idea to attack Israel. There's more behind that, but we won't go into it. Uh, And the text describes this really tense situation. So they had come into this valley, both armies, right? And they, they would put down a battle line. But the interesting part about this valley was one army would be on this side, and they would be up the hill, and then the other army would be at this side, and they would be up the hill. So any army that wanted to attack, it would pretty much be a suicide mission because they would have to run uphill, right? So And they would have the advantage on them, peering down on them. Not only that, but the Philistines are basically like the Vikings of the day. They're like the big warrior professional soldier people, and uh, Israel is just not that. This is a nation of shepherds, which I'm going to rant about later. Um, this is a nation of farmers. They're not, they're not these warlike, mongrel people, and the Philistines are. So they, both, they see this disadvantage. Both the armies are looking at each other like, you go first, no, you go first, and we're not going to do anything. And finally, the Philistines send forth this big, big man named Goliath, right? And Goliath is actually by, like, sort of, Modern standards, he was about six nine, so he's shorter than most NBA players. But at that time he was like this big, gargantuan, huge man. They describe him with all this fancy, amazing armor, and he's this like professional soldier because this is not his first time at this. And he gets out in front of them and he says, Send your best guy, and we will duel. And if we win, we will take over your lands and you will become our slaves. And if we win, same thing happens, vice versa, right? So A big key moment here is to recognize that slavery has again entered the scene in this story. I mean, last week, we just covered them getting out of slavery. And generations have gone by, but you can imagine the fear in the Israelites thinking like, wait, wasn't God supposed to be in this? Didn't he free us from the slavery, from from these people, these big powers once before? Why is this happening again? So basically... Israel sees Goliath, and they're like, no way am I doing that. So no one steps forward, no one, and they're just in this deadlock. So Goliath just keeps coming out day after day, and he's like, guys, come on, send your best person, and let's end this, and they keep going, no way, not me. Uh, And so David is sent by his father, still still a teenager, like a boy at this point, sent by his father to go deliver food for his brothers who had enlisted in the army and who were helping out. So he brings all this food to them, and he's walking around, and he's hearing this thing about this giant, and this Goliath guy, and he goes, I'll do it. So we have, like, remember, like, and this is a cool key thing about these stories, too. Last week, we had Moses, who encountered the burning bush, and he did that, and we sort of said, we talked about it, where we were, like, he kind of encountered that on his morning commute. Like, it wasn't anything special for him to be roaming those lands at that point, and the burning bush, sort of, God presents himself in that mundane, regular, everyday scenario, and here, David is sent on an errand to go deliver food, and this life-changing scenario, God presents itself. So as we're just living our everyday lives, we kind of have to pay attention and go, like, God could be in this everywhere. So uh, David hears about Goliath and says, I will do it. He goes to Saul, and Saul knows David because David has been playing the harp for him. Saul goes through this kind of interesting demon possession thing that we can get into later if you really want to. But David would play, is it rain or is that? David would play his harp, and Saul would feel better. That's sort of the way that the scripture describes it. So Saul is very much aware of who David is. Uh, So David goes in, he talks to Saul, and he goes, I can do this, trust me. And then he outlines exactly why he can do it. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. He tells him, I'm a shepherd, and I have to watch my father's flock. And that entails, like, when a wild beast or a thief comes around, I have to take care of it. So he literally describes to Saul that a lion and a bear have attacked his flock, and he has killed them with his bare hands. So Saul has got to be like, at this point, like, he's taken on a lion and a bear with his bare hands, and he's lived. Let's go with David. Send him out there. So he dresses him in all this armor, and David just is like this little guy, and he's like, "I can't, this is too much for me. I can't move around. Just let me do my thing. So he leaves the tent. He goes and he finds five smooth stones. And then he comes back with a sling and five smooth stones. you got to be thinking, like, if the entire nation is on the line and Israel is sort of like, it could possibly be approaching, like, slavery, they're probably looking at this kid with this sling going, like, what are we doing? Right? But David keeps assuring them, trust me, God is going to see this through. Everything is going to be okay. And so he goes out and he approaches David and this is, the, this is the funniest part. Goli- or he approaches Goliath. Sorry. Goliath just literally kind of chuckles and laughs at him. He's like, are you serious? Like, this will be over in two seconds. And David takes the sling in his hand, and he whips it around, and he throws it, and he hits him right in the forehead. And down goes Goliath. And boom. Now this leads to like David's fame. This leads to David becoming king. This leads to all of this crazy stuff. But let's just focus right in here and the now on what that actually meant. So David being, or Goliath being hit in the forehead is actually a symbol. You see, the Jewish people would wear the scriptures on their forehead. This is a reminder. It was like God's word is constantly with us, and we need to be reading God's word. So they would put bits of Hebrew scripture and wear it on their forehead, and where David hits Goliath is sort of this symbolic thing that says, like, God was behind this. God is in this, and he is through this. And so David becomes famous, leads to uh, to Saul sort of being unkinged, and there's a whole big story that comes after that, which we're not going to get into because we're going to actually step into the story of Jesus next week. Uh, But I want to focus on the act of David. I want to focus on not just David's big story, but just this one little act. I think it's really, really important, and it tells a lot about the character of David, and it also tells a lot about the character of our faith. So when David steps out and he does this, It's easy for us to think, well, David's trying to get ahead. Like, this is a good move for David politically. This is a good move for David career wise. Like, if he does this, he's going to be made, he's going to be set. And in fact, the scripture describes what's going to be done for this person that defeats Goliath, and it's a lot. Like, they're going to get a lot out of it. But the reason that David did this was not selfish and for personal gain, it was literally to step in and actually protect his people. And I think that's a huge, huge deal to focus in on he steps in as a teenage boy, sort of this powerless figure, to save an entire nation. And what that is, is that David was living his life in the kind of way that when a problem presented itself, he was able to jump in and put himself in front of the other. So a problem was able to present itself, and he was able to jump in in front of the other. And that is the very, very point Of the Christian faith. We are actually called to lay down our lives for one's friends. We are called to love our neighbor. That's the entire point of the Christian faith, of following Jesus. And we can see this in the character of David, and we can see this most excellently in the person of Jesus. So I saw, um, anybody seen the Truman Show in here? Okay, I saw when I was like nine years old. And uh, I spent a year of my life, like, it's, it's a great movie. It's actually one of my favorite movies now. But when you're nine years old and you're still playing with action figures, it's that sort of thing that can really skew with your mind. So I spent legitimately, like, a good year of my childhood convinced that there were cameras and people following me. Like, I would just be, like, in my room, and I'd be like, there's definitely, sorry, there's that baby is still over there, and it's freaking <laughs> me out. Uh, but I would think, like... People are watching me constantly, and I actually found out, I'm going to read this for you, I actually found out that this is not a rare thing, uh, and it gets much more serious than I had. Mine ended in middle school when I was definitely not the center of attention, Uh, but check this out. There have been over 40 recorded instances of people suffering from the Truman Show delusion in the U.S. and the U.K. and elsewhere. Joel... Joel Gold, a psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital Center in New York City, and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at New York University, and his brother Ian, who holds a research chair in philosophy and psychiatry at Montreal's McGill University, are the foremost researchers on the subject. They have met, since 2002, over a dozen individuals, primarily white men between 25 and 34, suffering from this delusion, they have reported That one patient traveled to New York City after 9-11 to make sure that the terrorist attacks were not a plot twist in his personal Truman show, while another traveled to a lower Manhattan federal building to seek asylum from his show. Another patient had worked as an intern on a reality TV program and believed that he was secretly being tracked by cameras, even at the polls on Election Day in 2004. So, For me, again, this this delusion ended pretty young, and it didn't get that serious, but this is actually a serious problem, and I think it's because in the United States, we are taught that everything is about me, 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 right? From a very young age, you are taught, get ahead. Like, grab everything for yourself. But that's not the story of the scripture. That's not the story of David. David didn't jump into the situation for personal gain. David jumped in to literally save someone else. I think we spend a lot of our time believing that we are the starring role in our own movie when in actuality, like we should all be just helping each other. The lower players, lower on the bill. Right? So this leads me to my uh, shepherd rant. Uh, I was finally struck by this week, by the repetition in a lot of these stories. There's a hero who is sent by God Uh, most of the time reluctantly, and then God chooses this underdog and does great things. And it's not bad repetition. That's actually the archetype for most Hollywood movies and books and tales and myths that have lasted through the ages. But why, I ask you, why in all of these stories, literally every dang story, why is there a shepherd? And so this leads me to my next portion, which is called Why So Many Shepherds. So from number one story in our series of of story of, of God... Uh, every one of them has included a shepherd. Adam was charged with the care of every animal. Abel was a shepherd. So was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph was a mere shepherd boy until being forced into slavery by his shepherd family. Moses was a person of privilege, but is forced away due to murder and becomes, wait for it, a shepherd. Now, David comes from a whole family of shepherds. So what's going on here? And this caused me to think, does God just love shepherds? Are we all in the wrong line of work? But let's remember what we talked about earlier. The Bible is at its best when we look at it like Advent, with the symbolic and the literal lens over both. So yes, these are all shepherds. They're all literally shepherds. But symbolically and poetically, how do we unpack that? What does that mean? So, and even more than that, as we enter into this Christmas season, there are even more shepherds. When the angels first announced that whose Jesus, Jesus was born, they went to shepherds first. So I'm really going to get tired of saying the word shepherds. So I, I did some digging. Um, I think one of the key aspects we take for granted in these stories is like, of course there were shepherds. Like, we don't even think about it. Like, duh. But being a shepherd is one of the oldest professions in the world. Remember we said Adam, the very first human, was a shepherd. And he was, he was mounted with the care of all the animals. And I think the key idea to focus in on here is that idea of care. A shepherd in this day would guide its flocks to streams and pastures, caring for its flock with food and nutrients in extreme situations, It would fight off wild animals and even thieves from taking a single member of the flock. And these were blue-collar workers, guys. These were the outside fringe society people. And they were fringe for a couple reasons. One, they couldn't actually go into the towns and the places all that much because they were always away on business, which was taking care of their flocks. For days at a time, they would go and find fresh pastures to lead their flock to. And they were also sort of like on the fringe because they couldn't actually keep that ritually clean, which is kind of shocking. But like, they, weren't, they weren't able to practice the Sabbath. So in a lot of ways in the Jewish culture, they would have been considered like, kind of like bad people because they couldn't actually live the religious life to its fullest. And shepherd, I mean, this word has been beaten down by Christianese, uh, but it's truly a beautiful metaphor. And this is the kind of God, this is the kind of care that David understood God to be one that really walked with him and acted on his behalf, it was David who used this sort of language. The Lord is my shepherd. I won't go wanting. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For David, the shepherd, God, was not somewhere way up there, but he was right here walking with us, guiding us, and interceding. And guys, that's exactly who Jesus proclaims to be. I am the good shepherd, right? And this metaphor is powerful, and especially at Christmas, because it puts us in the same position as David, where we aren't acting just on our behalf, but we're looking for places to jump in for the other. This Advent, we're going to celebrate the literal and symbolic, and we're going to wait passionately. And that kind of waiting leads us into purpose. And if we have learned anything from David, it's that kind of purpose that leads us into real-life life action, real life laying your life down for the other. And David is the last great king that Israel sees, but from his line and what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of the year is the next great king, the one that came to the lowly and the meek and the oppressed and showed care for them like a shepherd, and I'm so excited to jump into that story together and just to celebrate Christmas together. So this morning we are going to celebrate communion together. Uh, and here's another really big deal, guys. So in the next couple weeks, you're going to get um, some letters, uh, some emails, and, and a card, perhaps, in the mail. Uh, we're really going to push towards the year end to increase our, our giving and our generosity for 2017. And so you each have a, a Resonate community card, and then you also have, like, a little envelope there. That envelope is for your generosity. It's it's to keep these lights on is to keep whatever that is humming <laughs> um, but we uh, we do need to see an increase in giving in the next year and so we're going to ask that you be generous over here at this table after taking communion and also if you guys have prayer requests uh, we have a prayer team that prays for those during the week I pray for those during the week so you can fill out uh, prayers or comments on the back of that we really want to know what's going on in your lives um, I'm going to pray for us and then Omid is going to lead us uh, and then if you guys want to come just one row at a time and sort of uh, dip you can dip the challah into the cup, or if you're gluten-free, we have that too. Um, And then, yeah, be generous. So let me pray for us. Lord, I'm just so grateful for one of the most famous stories uh, that's ever been written down, and that speaks to something, because it's lasted so long, and it still holds relevance. Even this week, as I was reading it over and over, I found new and fresh things, and that's what's so great about your word and about you, is you just constantly keep revealing new parts of who you are and your love for us. And so we're just grateful to be able to participate in that this morning, especially as we engage in communion together. Amen.